And I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent from her fornications. Behold, I will cast her into a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Theatera, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say. My friends, under this allegorical name Jezebel, which we analyzed at the last session, the Lord wants to include movements of marginal Christianity, which, by the way, continue to hold a place of honor in the church, and worse yet, they are not denied their Christian name. We saw last week that the Bishop of Theatera was at fault because he continued to name this woman, symbolically called Jezebel, he was still calling her a Christian. In other words, this woman was a member of the church, but she was teaching foreign and unchristian doctrines, strange things which were intolerable to the Lord, and he accuses and scolds the bishop because he continued to address this woman with the name of a Christian. About her fornication and adultery and sacrifices to idols, we analyzed last week that all these have a metaphorical meaning, and they refer to a teaching outside of the true teaching, and obviously the purpose was to distance the faithful from the true teachings of God. Needless to say, my friends, inside our ecclesiastical history existed many waves such as this, which caused great pain to the church, and consequently, they were condemned by her. In order to understand this better, the entire meaning of the, ver the verse that we read uh, of this section where the Lord here speaks to the bishop is that the bishop was responsible. And please remember this because it is the central point of today's subject. The bishop's responsibility is to discern any foreign elements in the church, strange or impure teachings, and to expel them immediately. This is the mind of this verse. This woman seems to have been a follower of agnostic heresy. However, she was a Christian inside the church. She was acting inside the church. She was not outside like, uh, let's say, the Jehovah's Witnesses are today. And I underline this fact that she was free to act inside the church. And we must mention that the litmus test that singles out the Gnostics is the area of ethics. In order to understand the basis of every heresy, especially Freemasonry and Theosophy, which uh, are derivatives of Gnosticism, we will, we will expand on this during our next, uh, next week's session because these have depth which the Lord characterizes the deep things of Satan. The ethics of Gnostics revolved around two extremes. One was that of the Nicolaitans, known for the destruction of the body with the indulgence in all pleasures. 
Their model was, it is necessary to abuse the flesh. In other words, I must destroy the flesh by exhausting it in the areas of pleasure. Abuse, to eat and drink always, and do so excessively, to get drunk, to do drugs, and to seek sexual relations with no restriction. All this to destroy the flesh. The other extreme was excessive self-control. The condemnation of marriage, the abstention from many different foods, not only meat, but many foods from the plant kingdom as well, such as fruits, as long as the fruit were still on the trees or plants. Such was the heresy of Manichaeism. The Manichaeans were terrible. They were teaching that if you would eat uh, a fig, let's say, uh, that was still on the tree, you were guilty of murder because this fig has a soul and you're responsible for murder. So when am I supposed to eat this fig? When I die from hunger? No, I will eat it when it falls from the fig tree. Terrible and nonsensical things, my friends. However, these extreme positions... The extreme self-control, the condemnation of marriage are characteristics of the Montanists as well. Montanus first appeared in Asia Minor, and as we were saying last week, one of his central teachings, uh, central teaching areas was the city of Theatera. This is why the Lord addresses the subject. After Montanus, we have the Siberians, the Abstentious, the Massalians, And in reality, the number of these super abstentious heresies is beyond measure. These two extremes would coincide in one central point, which was a basic point of the teachings of the Gnostics. Dualism, that the flesh is the cause or the source of evil, and it is the creation of an evil God, while the soul... The soul is the creation of the good God. So in order to free the soul from the bondage of the flesh, which was created from an evil God, we must destroy the flesh. And this is to be accomplished through licentiousness and extreme depravity, sexual filth, or through the method of extreme abstinence. I will not eat. I will not marry. I will starve myself. I will not go to a doctor if I get sick. And all this to destroy the evil creation, the flesh, which is the source of evil. St. Paul has forewarned us in his epistles about these Gnostic tendencies, even in those early years, especially the abstentious ones. He condemns these while the Nicolaitan tendencies are condemned by the second epistle of Peter and the epistle of Jude, the brother of God. If you remember, St. Paul talks in one of uh, the epistles about those who will prevent marriage and abstain from foods. 1 Timothy 4.3 Some will depart from the faith, forbidding to marry, and commending to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving. What do you mean? How can you say that you're guilty of murder when you eat a fig before it falls from the fig tree? What kind of stupid and demonic teachings are you holding? And why is marriage filthy and polluted? These are demonic teachings. If someone wants to stay unmarried, he will do so to honor the body of Christ, what St. Ignatius teaches. 
and not because marriage is something unclean in itself. I can only tell you, my friends, that these perceptions exist in very many of our Christians even today. If you only knew how many of our Christians believe that they will not be saved because they are married. Married. Now, we will mention that in a marriage, many things take place that are not acceptable to God. Now, if perversions take place within the marriage, then someone can justifiably say that they're in trouble. Of course. But if someone refuses to get married and he does illicit things, does abstention from marriage have any meaning? No, these are deviations and outside of the course. But marriage in itself is honorable, St. Paul says. Marriage is honorable in everything and the marriage bed undefiled. But God will judge the fornicators and adulterers. No, you cannot be a deviant. You cannot be an adulterer or an adulteress. You cannot get involved in unnatural and filthy perversions inside or outside of the marriage. No, these things are detestable to God. The marriage is a place of honor in all things. I remember a while back, went to a small country store, and the wife of the shop owner said with a great sigh, oh, only you will be saved. I don't know about us. My lady, why, why do you say that? Why do you feel this way? Because you're married? And she was advanced in years. My dear lady, why can't you be saved? Because you're married? If Is marriage an obstacle to your salvation? Who gave you this information? These are Gnostic perceptions. Whether we understand it or not, we don't know exactly the specific source of these perceptions, but they do circulate in the church, especially here in Greece. The fact remains that St. Paul condemns these positions, and it is also important to note that these tendencies and these waves always coexisted within the church, and they were falsifying the true teaching of the gospel. And now under the symbolic name Jezebel, the Lord is asking from the Bishop of Theatra to expel the woman who introduced the Gnostic perceptions in the church possibly puritanical ideas because she's considered a predecessor of Montanism, and she needed to be excommunicated if she would fail to repent. The Lord says, I gave her time to repent, and this assures us that she was a member of the church. Only someone in the church can repent. How can an idolater or a non-Orthodox repent? The sacrament of repentance is a privilege and a gift of the church. Please pay attention to this so you will be able to understand the rest of our talk today. The subject of repentance is an internal and intra-ecclesiastical matter. We need to understand that these are vital points. An interesting point here is the statement of the Lord, and I gave her time to repent but she does not want to repent from her fornications. In other words, from her unclean and polluted teachings, which contradict the teachings of the gospel, the teachings of the Lord. She refuses to repent. Consequently, this is an eternal affair of the church. Another point that we can see here is that the Lord gives her time to repent. And this element has been kept in the church throughout its history. 
that a heretical, strange, or foreign teaching needs a certain amount of time to be rectified. You need to invite the member who's spreading these false teachings. You need to present to him the correct and orthodox teachings and try to convince him to follow the conscience of the church. Perhaps he will not be convinced right away. A second and third and a number of attempts must take place to bring this person back to the orthodox teaching. And if he continues to disregard and spread his false and heretical teachings, then he needs to be cut off from the church. This was the procedure with Arius. Do you know how many years Arius stayed in the church, even though he was confronted a number of times to reconsider his position? Not only Alexander, but his predecessor admonished repeatedly Arius to straighten out but he would not take heed, so he was cut off from the church, from the body of the church, with the decision of the first ecumenical council. So this time of repentance is necessary. I'm only afraid that sometimes it may be too long, a little too long. I'm afraid of this. And this because sometimes we don't want to rock the boat, we don't want to create any waves, especially in our times, when we often put up with all kinds of intrusions in the church, and we remain silent. This is what's scary, and this is precisely what the Lord complains about to the bishop. His reprimand is based on this point, that you're still put up with this woman, and she's deceiving my faithful. Her teachings were demonic. The Holy Writ, the Holy Scripture is very clear about this. The Lord says, to the rest of you in Theatira, I say to those of you who did not get involved with the teachings of this woman, those of you who do not hold to these teachings, teaching, and he does not say practice, but teaching. So this was a false teaching. Those who did not learn the deep things of Satan. Well, some people outside of the church may talk about depths of wisdom, masters of wisdom, but I reveal to you, says the Lord, that these are but the deep things of Satan, and this proves that this was a demonic teaching. Now, what are some demonic teachings, my friends? And they are certainly not scarce in our times. And they are not easily detected either. For instance, Satan may suggest to you to fast a double great Lent, 80 days. This happened to one of our faithful in Patras. He had a vision, and the one appearing was Christ, was suggesting, if you like to please me, you will also fast from Easter until Pentecost. Here, we should smell a rat. The church says we do not fast this period. The devil says you must fast. And should I even tell you more? The people who take some kind of vine on a specific month so they can have children, they also may fast for 40 days. And after this, after this fast, they may fast another 40 days for great Lent. Worse yet, they may fast the 40 days suggested to them by their wizard, and they may neglect the great Lent, the fast of the church. I encounter this several times. Why don't you go to this master wizard, Cristo of Gazaro, in Ceres? I'm not suggesting that you, you should go, but some of you, some of you do go. When you find yourself in a very difficult situation, some of you who are listening to me right now, you lose your faith in God and you go. 
And after you return, you tell me, Father, I went there. But why did you go? You know better. I often warn you about this. But, Father, I needed to save my child. So you will save your child with the help of the devil? Does the devil save or destroy? That's why I said, why don't you go to him? And what does this infamous Christo, the number one medium of Greece, may tell you? You will write a letter to the holy mountain in this specific address, and you will have them send you a piece of grapevine and some other strange requests. And now I ask myself, don't the Hagarite fathers catch on to this, that these customers of theirs are referrals of the devil? It seems that they don't. They don't realize it. St. Paul, my friends, when the medium in Philippi, the poor slave girl, when she was uh, repeatedly introducing them as, as a servant of God, servants of God, St. Paul did not hesitate to exorcise the demonic spirit from the young woman. The demon was expelled, and the young woman lost her fortune-telling abilities. So we go to the door of Satan, and then Satan sends us there, and Wizard Christo uses icons, incense, and holy objects to get you all tangled up. And Christo of Gazaro maneuvers inside the perimeters of the church. He uses the climate of the church. And Christian people fall for it. What a menace. You must do three divine liturgies, 40 supplication services, three holy unction services. Why three? Why 40? Isn't one enough? And why not four, but three? This alone should make us suspect sorcery. And that's what he is. He's a sorcerer. And I repeat, he's been doing his job for years and years, and his customers are baptized church members. And no one is correcting him. But we see here that the Lord says that these are the deep things of Satan, and this has to do with a demonic teaching. I believe that these few things that we brought to your attention can be helpful to draw some basic conclusions to keep these things in mind, and we will include an outline for the understanding of today's subject, but to also stay alert and watchful because these things always take place in the church in one form or another. And now to summarize some of these basic points, first, it has to do with an intra-ecclesiastical phenomenon. I underline this, takes place within the church and not from the outside. Second, there's a presence of a strange teaching, a teaching foreign and irreconcilable to the gospel and the church. Third, there is a coexistence between the strange teaching and the teaching of the church, and there is no condemnation even though this has been taking place for a relatively long period of time, and this is not good. A false teaching can creep in, and it may take a short period of time to be revealed. But once we come to the realization, then if we let this condition exist for a long period of time, this is unacceptable. It is unacceptable to close an eye and pretend that it does not exist. Fourth, this teaching is directly related to Satan. It has demonic depth. It leads to the worship of Satan, to the worship of Satan, but it is camouflaged behind the elements of our faith and our worship 
and it hides behind these things. Number five, it creates false prophets and false prophetesses. These five are the basic characteristics of all those who create a questionable movement within the church. Based on these five elements, we can now characterize and pinpoint not only that woman of Theatra uh, of that time, 2,000 years ago, but we can apply these basic points to pinpoint any similar actions in our church today, even today. And now we ask, are there any such movements within our church today? Most certainly, and not a few. Tonight, we will concentrate on a certain movement here in Greece that has caused great and serious problems in the church. However, the church has not condemned these movements, even though 60 years have gone by. It has to do with the self-declared illumined. These people call themselves fortismeni, or illumined, people of light. These individuals are mostly women, and there's very few men in these movements, this movement started in 1923 with Constantina Zolota, who is no longer with us. She departed this life. Movement of Zolota, a very affluent woman with clout and so on. She initiated an academy called the Redemptive Academy of the Most Holy Theotokos. Again, this woman is no longer alive, but today there are at least 500 groups in the area of Athens and uh, Athenian suburbs, 500 organized study groups averaging between 20 to 100 people per group. An estimated 25,000 people in Attica follow the teachings of this Zolota. In the same category, we have another lady called Helen of Spata, also Mrs. Magula. She also left us. And we also have Athanasia Kriketu, the saint of Egaleo. Athanasia continues her deceptive work even in our days. And the sad thing is that even priests and bishops visit her. Politicians go to seek her. This alone should give it away because politicians usually do visit mediums. We also have a, cer a certain Maria of Larissa, and I believe she probably left us as well. And finally, in the same category, we have an Orthodox Archimandrite from the Archdiocese of America called Efsevios Papastefanu, or Stefanu. Efsevios Stefanu is involved and active in the so-called Charismatic Movement. A close relative of this Charismatic Movement is the Christian Organization of Peace, COP, here in Larissa. You know about COP, we have warned you a number of times. These people have visions, dreams, they write poems, especially poems, especially the movement of Zolota. I happen to have in my possession some of these writings. A lady, and I believe she's probably present tonight, anyway, she was telling me about her brother. Suddenly, one night, he gets up, he gets out of bed, and he starts to write and write and write, and after that, he's constantly writing. Great philology. And yet, this man is almost illiterate. How can this be? I did not respond to this lady, uh, even though enough time has gone by. I don't know if that's good or bad. They also reveal unknown matters, these illumined individuals. They reveal sins. They tell you you did this sin, and no one else knows about this except you. 
They performed healings. They healed the sick. I remember one woman visiting the bishop before 1974. The bishop told her that she was deluded. The bishop sent her to me, and she came to the church of St. Stylianos. She told me that she belongs to the movement of Zolota. She took out a wooden cross from her pocketbook, and she told me, I heal people. I heal the sick with this cross. My lady, be careful. Let's look into these things very closely. Are you kidding? People become well in front of my very eyes. Someone may be sick in bed, and I bless him with my cross, and he becomes well immediately. So these people heal the sick, they perform miracles, they may create a sweet fragrance, and they also prophesy. They foretell the future as well. Remember what the Lord called the woman of Thyatira, false prophetess. Jezebel was a false prophetess. And a basic characteristic of all these people that I referred to is prophecy, which was also a basic characteristic of Jezebel. They also have the phenomenon of speaking in tongues, new and inconceivable tongues, and they strongly believe that the Holy Spirit moves through them. The Holy Spirit speaks to them directly. When I was very young, our parish priest used to participate in a study group of Zolota. She had a huge house in the suburbs of Athens, and she was quite well-to-do, and she had the meetings in her house. And at the beginning of the year, they would call the priest to bless the house, do a yasmo, or the holy water service. And the priest was telling me all this, and uh, he even was admitting the fact that she was deluded. Now, I was very young. I was a small child at the time, and I did not have much knowledge. But someone could say to him, my dear father, if you know that she's deceived, and thus deceiving others, why do you go to her door to sanctify the house of deception? Tell her, no, I will not come because you are deluded. So these groups use the priests, they do services in the church. They love to have many holy unction services because it is related to the Holy Spirit. I remember the leaders of our local charismatic Pentecostal movement about 10 years ago They were very much involved with holy unction and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. One of them them asked me a number of questions on this subject. I have been quite aware of their activities. Uh, they, They still go to church. They take Holy Communion. They constantly speak about Christ and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And as we will see, in the charismatic movement of Father Stefano, they raise their hands in the air. They assume a happy smiling face, and they keep smiling, keeping their hands raised. They seem to have an element of constant enthusiasm, at least in public. But at the same time, there's an element of nervousness which suggests a great deal. It suggests a whole lot. This nervous movement says a great deal about these gatherings. And toward the end uh, of this session, we will hear what Father Stefano has to tell us about these gatherings. My friends, now how can all these things be explained? Quite obviously, these people are moved by a certain spirit. The question is, what spirit is behind all this? Are these people under the energy of the Holy Spirit, as they claim uh, that they receive? 
or are they under the energy of an evil spirit? We will reach our conclusion from their works and from their teachings. We will see what spirit actually moves them. And now, after this general introduction, let's begin to discuss these different movements. Naturally, these movements have idiomatic characteristics as well. First of all, let's look into the movement of Zolota. I was very young. I was only eight years old, and I used to hear about this lady while visiting my neighbors. Her movement started in 1923, and she became extremely popular in the area of Piraeus. She earned the admiration of the women, especially the women, who simply loved to talk about Zolota. One of the things that I remember specifically was her tendency to associate her school with the thrill of freeing Constantinople from the Turks. Her school would serve as the boot camp for the freedom fighters to regain the lost Byzantium. I remember this like it was today. But we will return to this a little later. Generally, they were striving to become a global organization. They would like to spread their teachings worldwide. They hold millennial perceptions. They are millennialists. They say that Christ would come and reign 1,000 years on earth, which is the backbone behind the heresy of the Jehovah Witnesses, the greatest out of the great number of false teachings. These Zolota followers are also characterized by an excessive worship for the person of the Most Holy Theotokos. However, as Orthodox, we do not worship the Theotokos, the Virgin Mary. We only worship God. We simply offer honorary veneration for the Virgin Mary. There's also a certain uncertainty about the person of Christ. At times, they consider him as a human being only, and at times, they speak in such a way to make someone think, well, where do they stand? They don't know where they stand. Is he God or is he not? They use materials from the pseudo-gospels. They also write books, and I believe uh, Zolota wrote a book, and they come up with some stories about Christ that seem to be taken directly from the Apocrypha. But the church rejects these Apocrypha as false. But what is worse than all this, they consider their school of redemption to be a higher authority than the church. That's how far Satan pushes these people. But I need to return to the fact that they entertain their movement with a certain ethnicism, at least back then, when I was very young, and I happen to remember this very, very well, I heard this with my own ears, that there was a certain movement to free Constantinople, and they were interpreting prophecy after prophecy, and these prophecies were stretched in such a way to mean the regaining of Constantinople. I must tell you that these things seem to repeat themselves over and over again. And even, even as I'm speaking to you, there's a certain man here in Larissa who's attempting to interpret some prophecies for the purpose of taking Constantinople back. They have prepared banners, flags. They have organized different battalions of militia. And they are preparing to conquer and regain Constantinople. Now, where do they support all this? They support their views or their beliefs on two different points. The one can be found in the book of the Revelation in the 10th chapter, verse 10. 
Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. John the Evangelist uh, is called upon, who's seen these visions, he's called upon to record these in the book of the Revelation. And the angel gives him a book, and John ate this book. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, and tongues, and kings. Let's pay attention to this here. You must prophesy again. The true interpretation of this verse is this. There's some sort of intermission, so to speak. Up to this point, you saw what you saw. You saw phase one. Now, after this, phase two will begin, a second phase of prophecies. This is what is meant by, by uh, you will prophesy again. Now, let's listen to the interpretation given by some of these people here in Larissa, here in our city. Listen to this. They use some outlandish means to support their theories. They say, when St. John the Evangelist wanted to die, before he died, he instructed his disciples, the Christians, to place him in a tomb. They started to cover him progressively with soil, and they covered him finally. And after one hour, when they returned to the tomb, the body was gone. The tomb was empty. Unfortunately, I must tell you that this is quite widespread. You may even find this information in ecclesiastical books. You may even find it in the Synaxarion. But this is outrageous. And I mean outrageous because here you can see how the devil manages to intrude and plant some ideas in the minds of Christians. When the Lord told Peter, they were near the lake of Tiberias, he told Peter, come with me, follow me. And he revealed to him by what death he would die. In other words, a death of martyrdom. John, without being told anything, he arose all by himself and started to follow the Lord. And this after they ate the fish at the beach, where they cooked fish on a uh, fire of coals, the gospel tells us. Then Peter turned around, and he saw John, and he asked the Lord, because Peter and John were quite close, they're very good friends, Lord, how about him? In verse 20 of the last chapter of John, we read, Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following. Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, But Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Since John wrote his gospel many years after this fact, about 70 years later, he wants to correct a false rumor that was circulating in some members of the church. There was the mistaken notion in the church that John, that disciple, would not die. And now John himself comes to correct this bad teaching found in the early church. In verse 23, he will write, then this saying went out among the brothers that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. But if I will that he remains till I come back, what is that to you? In other words, assuming that 
I wanted him to stay alive forever and not die until I come back. What is this to you? And here, do you see how St. John himself, St. John the Evangelist, corrects this misunderstanding? He corrects it because this idea was spreading throughout the church. Despite this correction, my friends, and this is why I told you this is totally outrageous, despite this correction that John made by his own hand in his Holy Gospel, this very diabolical teaching stubbornly circulates to this day that John did not die. So listen to this. According to this diabolical teaching, John did not die, and he's hidden somewhere here in the world. And when the Antichrist comes, by the way, I read this in a book written in the 18th century as well. Someone wrote an interpretation of the book of the Revelation in the 18th century, and in this book, he says that three did not taste death, Enoch, Elijah, and John. But the Holy Scripture says nothing to this effect about John. Nowhere. John himself spells it out. They go on interpreting when the Antichrist comes, these three will come to reprove him and stand up to him. These three represent the three laws. Enoch represents the natural law of the conscience, Elijah, the law of Sinai of Moses, and John, the law of the gospel. All these three will be finally killed by the Antichrist, but the book of the Revelation comes to contradict all this, and John corrects this even in his book of the Revelation when he writes that, the prophets that will fight the Antichrist will be two and not three. They're two olive trees. And you know, St. John of Damascus interprets these two olive trees are named Elijah and Enoch. How does John get involved in all this? So now John will prophesy again according to them. John will appear again since he did not die. He will appear in our times and he will prophesy about some important events, and these prophecies pertain to the liberation of Constantinople, like the subject of the revelation is something local to Greece. No, my friends, the subject of the revelation is universal. However, when it says here, you must prophesy about many peoples, rulers, tongues, and kings, these prophecies are global. Do you see these delusions? This is why we need to expose them and spell them out. Now, now we must also point this out, that all these deluded individuals can say a number of good things. The devil, because he's the one who inspires them, the devil, my friends, not the Holy Spirit, the devil is capable of telling you 1,000 good things and one false. The 1,000 good things do not outdo the one that will lead you astray. God-inspired means that all is good, all is correct. But when these interpreters claim that they are God-inspired, is it possible for them to make mistakes? And yes, they do make a number of mistakes. But is the Holy Spirit behind their interpretations and these inspirations? No, my friends, the Holy Spirit does not play games. The devil is the one who deceives and these people are under the energy of the devil. And then continuing with a list of the illumined people, 
we must mention a couple of things about this infamous Eleni of Spata, S-P-A-T-A. -A. I was a very young boy when, uh, and this was before the war, before 1940, when I used to hear about her. She was the one who was seeing Christ in visions day and night, and this was the cause to build a church of the resurrection in Spata. The holy elder Yervasios Parasquevopoulos writes about this Eleni. He writes, If I use my own judgment from all the things I have heard during confessions and continue to hear, but also from the disgust of a number of people who have witnessed this delusion and demonic appearances and revelations, we are being led to the following conclusion. If the holy and honorable administrating body of our church does not turn its total attention and energy to the excommunication of these oracles, psychics, and mediums, whose father and mother happens to be the Church of the Resurrection in Spata, Arica, and the well-known priestess Eleni of Spata, the governing body of the church places itself in the same danger as King Saul, who was successful in wars and peace when he was persecuting and clearing the psychics and the fortune tellers and the wizards from the earth. However, when he sought out their advice, he committed suicide. After the Selenium Spata, we have the infamous Magula, and after her, uh, this Athanasia Kriketu, who's still alive, and she employs the phenomenal, phenomenon of dermatography. She exposes her breasts. Please forgive me for being blunt, but that's what she does. And the Holy Spirit supposedly gives instructions and messages by writing these things on her chest. Now tell me, would God ever use the chest of a woman to give commandments to people? There's a certain skin disorder called derma, dermatographism. And uh, with a sharp object, uh, if you draw a line on the skin, the skin becomes sensitive and shows a very distinct red line. But alone the fact that she cannot even spell, you would think uh, they would have the decency to spell things correctly. But that's a different matter. Now she has so many icons around her that makes people think that she's truly a saint. Worse yet, she calls herself, she gives herself the title of a saint, and she gives her picture to our stupid Christians who take it and place it next to their icons in their homes. These are the deceived, the ones who our Lord complains about to the Bishop of Theatira. She deceives my people, the Lord says to the bishop. And this Athanasia of Eralio deceives our Christians and they place her picture next to the icons in their homes. About a certain Maria of Larissa, our own city, and maybe some of you have even been her victims, I remember many years ago when I first came to Larissa, when a young friend of mine, a spiritual person, happened to visit her. Listen to this scenario. This woman would enter her bed, go to bed at night, uh, nighttime, and during this night, during the night, but she was presumably sleeping and seeing visions, and from time to time some phrases would come out of her mouth, again, 
our silly and stupid Christians, or in order to be a little bit kinder, let's call them our deceived Christians, they were waiting up all night around her bed to grab some prophetic words that would come out of her mouth. Most of the bedside spectators were obviously women, while the husband were in the kitchen enjoying the fruit of the vine all night long. They were half drunk by the morning. When this young man visited this atmosphere for the first time, he could not believe his eyes. And at some point, he spoke out and told the ladies around the bed, Why are you wasting your time? Why are you listening to her? She's demon-possessed. All of a sudden, the sleeping beauty stood straight up and began a verbal attack with all the colorful adjectives exposing her true colors. And now I come to the most interesting subject of Efsevio Stefanu. His Greek name is Papa Stefanu, but in the U.S. he goes by Stefanu, and he's an ordained Orthodox Archmandrite who has been terribly deluded. He believes that he can invoke the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit can respond to his wishes, and he descends as Pentecost. At least he thinks that what takes place is the reenactment of Pentecost. They have followed the footsteps of the heretical Pentecostals of Europe and America. Of course, at times, he says that his movement has nothing to do with the Pentecostals. But actions are louder than words. No matter what you say, my friend, anyone can clearly see that's where you bought these goods. He goes on to say that this charismatic movement, in other words, to call upon the Holy Spirit, this exists in the Protestant, in the Roman Catholic, and the Orthodox churches as well. All these charismatic Christians will leave their corresponding churches since no one will be able to understand them. And he mentions that the Pope is getting irritated and will begin to persecute the charismatics of Catholicism. So all these charismatics, the charismatic children of Christianity, will abandon their churches and they will start something new. We have one of his books here titled The Global Pouring of the Holy Spirit. And this book circulates worldwide. This book circulates here in Greece in great numbers. And uh, the purpose is to proselytize. The subtitle of this book is The Charismatic Movement from an Orthodox Perspective. In this book, he defends his actions and answers his critics. I will read just a few points because of the limited time. And he writes, the charismatic movement is also known by the name of Pentecostal movement. Well, here we have it. It is a Pentecostal movement. And the purpose of this movement is to seek out and relive the experience of Pentecost. We do not hide the fact that this charismatic movement, with all its outward signs, has spread throughout all the major Western churches, such as the Roman Catholic, Anglican, Lutheran, Presbyterian, and that of the Jehovah Witnesses. So here we also accept Jehovah Witnesses as charismatics. It is rather significant that those who oppose the charismatic movement, especially in America, 
can be found in the ranks of both the liberal and conservative types of Christians. This opposition is not limited to the Orthodox Church only. Therefore, the Charismatics managed to accomplish the union of the Church well ahead of all those who are seeking this union, and naturally, these unions are to be discarded. And we continue with Papa Stefano's comments. Nor do we hide the fact that the charismatic movement has as its forerunner the classical Pentecostal church. And after a few paragraphs, do you know what he writes? Many Orthodox, out of ignorance, bad will, and bias, they confuse the charismatics with the followers of the Pentecostal church. This is their response if you accuse them that they are children or fruits of the Pentecostals. They call you narrow-minded, close-minded. On one hand, they do not want to be associated with the Pentecostals, and on the other hand, they do not want to hide the fact that the classical Pentecostal church is their forerunner. But this is the general confession and admission of all charismatics, whether Roman Catholic, Protestant, and with much gratefulness, they discern the hand of divine providence to move about this appearance of the Pentecostal church. Let's listen to this. Many scholars of the international Pentecostal movement consider this to be one of the most significant events of contemporary Christianity, equal in its importance with the Protestant Reformation of the 15th century. And here you have it again. The Pentecostal church is nothing more but an offshoot of the desperate Protestant movement. In another section of the book, Stefano attempts to explain how the Holy Spirit comes to these special Christians. To some, this divine presence feels like electrical current that enters through the hands or the head and it spreads out to the entire body which creates a shock. But these shocks are characteristics of the energy of the demons from the experience of our church. The Holy Spirit comes as, a, as the morning dew. It does not nerve-wrack people. It does not make people shake and spin or to feel electrically energized or electrically shocked. In page 193, he says, at times, but not always, the hands swing, at times the head and sometimes the entire body swings. But we know for a fact that these things and phenomena such as this are most common in the area of spiritism. These are psychic phenomena, and we are most certain that the devil or Satan is the protagonist in all these environments. And Stefano continues, the writer is not only an eyewitness, but a participant of all these truly miraculous signs of the Spirit taking place among charismatics. He also has a number of pictures in this book. He says, the universal and Catholic pouring of the Holy Spirit in the last days shows that the Lord can accomplish his eternal purpose even outside of the Orthodox Church. Listen, listen, listen. The Lord can abandon his church 
and reach his goals outside of the Orthodox Church. And all this without denying the true fact that she remains the mother church. Sure, he wants to cover his bases so he will not invite any unnecessary persecution. Sure, we accept that she is the mother church. However, somewhere along the line, Christ just abandons her. And in, in some other areas of his book, he writes that the church is taking the way of a prostitute, the great prostitute of Babylon. This is how he speaks about the Orthodox Church. It is possible that Christ will be forced to bypass the church. Listen to this. Bypass the church. In other words, to deny the church, to push the church aside once and for all. This historical church that we all Orthodox proclaim was the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Do you hear all this? Christ will push the church aside. But what happened to his promise to Peter? That the gates of Hades will not overtake it. Is Christ lying here? So Christ will push the church aside and he will proceed ahead without it to do something new. Christ without his church. And here Stefano adds that orthodoxy already, the bride of Christ in many aspects is beginning to change into a woman of prostitution, into a prostitute. In page 208, they interpret falsely, so falsely, and unfortunately our time is running out. They misinterpret the prophecy of Joel and they say that the cosmic changes and signs that did not take place during the day of Pentecost, all these will be revealed now during the great and upcoming day of the Lord. He goes on to say that we will be raptured from the Lord, as the Lord says this about his second coming. We will be raptured, and pay attention here, we will be raptured not towards heaven, but the Lord will transfer all the charismatics. He will only rapture the charismatics and transfer them to Zion in Jerusalem. There they will stay for seven years until the great tribulation passes. After that, then we will see. My friends, these people are running circles in our church. They deceive daily, and the church has not condemned them. Here in Larissa, the Pentecostal movement goes by the name of Christian Organization of Peace, and they present similar signs. They speak in tongues. They insist that they perform healings and deliveries. All these are works of those deluded Christians of the category of the self-called illumined. Let's be very careful. Let's be extremely careful. The conclusion is quite obvious, based on everything we said. These are energies of the evil spirit, and this is revealed by the Lord when he characterized all these as the deep things of Satan, and that this woman, the one he called Jezebel, he calls all these works and days of the woman Jezebel. The Lord warns us, let no one deceive you. 
because many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will deceive many, and many false prophets will rise, and they will deceive many, and they will present great signs and miracles. So they would deceive even the elect if it were possible. Behold, I warn you ahead of time. Watch, I have told you these things. So my friends, we owe it to ourselves to exercise humility because the spirit of delusion works especially among the proud because these people have the confidence that they can interpret correctly outside of the interpretation of the church or the scripture. Eventually, these people become self-shepherding. They don't want to listen to anybody else. They become their own spiritual authority, as Jude, the brother of God, says. The woman Jezebel is still circulating, and she will circulate an act until the end of history. She moves inside the church, breaking away, pulling away servants of God from the sheep pen of salvation. Let's open our eyes. Let's keep them wide open. Let's stand well because many deceivers have come into the world. The devil is frothing at them out, especially in our days. He has gone mad. Let's be on the lookout constantly. It is a matter of our internal personal salvation.